Hey, Jim. Hey, Eric. Hey. The world really needs a podcast that picks apart where our ideas about race come from. Maybe you're right, Joe, but if we were going to do that really well, we'd need an historian of science, a human biologist, and a cultural anthropologist to help us interpret these phenomena. That's a tall order. Um, guys, I'm a historian of science. And I'm a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I'm a human biologist. Let's, Let's do this. this. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim. And this is Speaking of Race, the interdisciplinary podcast that uses original research plus interviews with experts to ask the important question, where did our ideas about race come from? And why does it stick around so persistently? And we put together over 40 content-rich episodes that help people explore those big questions about race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris, how are you? I am awesome, how are you? Do you want to hear some natural selection I've imposed on my backyard? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so this is ongoing. So at any point during the interview today, you might hear me scream out in shock and horror. So as you know, I liberally feed the chipmunks, squirrels, raccoons, possums, any wildlife in my backyard I gladly put food out for. That means I have now also attracted hawks to my backyard who are gleefully picking off those very chunky chipmunks and squirrels. And as you've seen at my house, it's a big open window. And I have now watched a number of times in the past two days of that hawk swooping in to pick up lunch. Well, so that's really interesting. So right now we're introducing a memorial episode, which you know makes it sound like we're kind of being flipped, but we're going to be talking to Peter Unger and Leslie Lusko about Alan Walker, who passed mm -hmm. in 2017, and his his work in Africa, like literally being there where human evolution took mm -hmm. place and, and seeing what the environment was like and imagining what it used to be like and trying to put that into context with the fossils has led to some imaginative scenarios of natural selection and how that might have happened. And, and what it brings to mind is some of the scenarios, and this is related to our string of guests here, but the idea that the tongue child and some of those Australopithecus Africanus hominids that they found were, were the results of predation and scavenging. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, students always love those stories that, you know, paleoanthropologists have put together about, you know, how we found the exact fossils we found and under what circumstances they may have been preserved. And yeah, predators always come into play or, you know, the different cave dwellings that we find all of these fossils in. And how did you get all of these bones in a cave? And, and predation is often, although likely not a hawk, but potentially, I believe one of the ones about Tong Child is a large predatory bird, isn't it? Yeah, the eagles, those giant eagles, I forget, but they've mapped the claw marks and such for mm -hmm. I'm going to name one of the chipmunks Tong Child now. Nice. See how long it lasts. I think Bob Sussman, who actually also recently passed, is a primatologist, mm -hmm. but I, I do believe 
he and a former student whose name escapes me at the moment wrote a whole book on that that I assigned to students at one point. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, so like what I was going to say is Peter, Leslie, and Alan, and what we're talking about is a tradition of people who tell really, really great stories to help mm -hmm. us understand human evolution, taking mm -hmm. data from things like tooth microware, mm -hmm. right, which, which- And painting like a picture that we would never be able to put together basically yeah. on our own, making it much more real and much more alive than, you know, what a small fossil tooth might say otherwise. Yeah, so I mean, it's been exciting to prep for these interviews because it helps me in understanding the field that we're both in and to be able to translate it to students, right? No, absolutely. So let's bring on Peter and Leslie. Hello, how are you? I'm okay. I'm still standing, well, I'm sitting, but I'm still here. <laughs> How's your air quality? Oh, it's not so good. I think the AQI was like close to 200 when I last checked, Oh, which is not, not good. No. I have now become an expert on following the AQI. I'm very sensitive to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing, let's see, a air quality index? Exactly, the air quality index, and basically over a hundred is unhealthy for people who are kind of sensitive to air, you know, like you have asthma or something. 150, it's not very good for anybody. And 200, it's like really bad. Like you should go inside. <laughs> Everybody wears masks. They give out free N95 masks on campus when it's over 150. <laughs> N95s. Wow. Double duty. I know. And you have to wear two masks because it has the valve in it. So you have to wear your one mask for the smoke and then another mask for the virus. <laughs> So thank you both for taking your time to join us. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Oh yeah, this is both Leslie and, and Peter are here today to, to talk about Alan Walker. He passed away on November 20th, 2017. And we've been trying to do memorial episodes for, for folks in the field who have recently passed. And as Chris was saying, we, we like hearing the stories about these people who have had such a big impact on our field and the, the work they have done kind of echoes through in our classes and in our research. So thank you both so much for taking some time today to talk about your experiences and stories of Alan. Yeah, honored to get to share stories about him. So what brought you together to write this piece jointly? It was clear from the way the piece was written, Leslie, that you were a student of his Peter, I, I wasn't sure. You're all swimming in the same pond. So how did this come together for you? So Pat Shipman had been approached by the Royal Society about who she might feel comfortable with writing the biographical memoir for him. And she had actually suggested both of us to do that together. So uh, I think we represent kind of two different eras of Alan's career. I assume that's probably why she chose us. I don't know, Peter, do you have any insight? No, I agree. And I think that the fact that Leslie was a PhD student and I was a, his postdoc mm -hmm. also is, is important because that also represents two different sort of generations of training, mm -hmm. different types of training and relationships. So if you could explain that two different eras of Alan's career, would you mind going into that a little bit, what those eras were? Yeah, so I met Alan the year he had first moved to Penn State. And he went basically around the time many people in their careers would retire. He moved to a new university. He was never one to fear change, that's for sure. And 
showed up there. I was his first graduate student at Penn State. So my impression was that it was a much more relaxed, like I'm having fun now <laughs> phase of his research career. I don't know, Peter, when he was at Hopkins, was he more intense than Penn State or? Uh, it's hard to tell. I mean, he was always all about the having the fun, right? Because he always used to say, you know, we could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So what's the point if you're not going to have fun while you're doing it? But it was kind of intense. There were moments there. I remember once when uh, Don Johansson came and visited for a television documentary. There were some intense moments, but uh, by and large, no, he was, he was pretty laid back. Do tell. There's no real story there. This was back in those, in the days when there were big debates between Don Johansson's group and, and Richard Leakey's group. That's all that was about. Yeah. As an outsider to paleoanthropology, there is a, a mythology about the intensity of paleoanthropologists and their conference debates. I don't want to disparage the field that I have high respect for. Since we were talking about teeth in your work, like there'll be a joke that there's one tooth and there'll be completely opposing stories that are intensely argued at conferences. Is there any truth to that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, as Milford Woolpuff was my advisor in undergrad and he would tell story about, you know, the whole multi-regional versus out of Africa debate and how like there would be literal shouting matches in, in conferences, which I don't think I've ever witnessed that in my short time in this field. But that kind of blows my mind when I hear those stories of how paleoanthro seems to be the field that has those shouting matches. I don't think it's quite as much today as it was like when I first started out. There were definitely a whole bunch of silverback male gorillas in the room with their teams beside them and behind them. And it was, it was much more of a team sport than it seems to be today. That settled out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we invest so much time in so little. <laughs> that tends to bring it out in a lot of people. But or at least it did. Because of that, I think you also get a huge amount of innovation um, happening. So if you look at some of the, the real innovations that have happened in paleontology, they get their start in paleoanthropology. So geometric morphometrics, the use of the micro CT scanning that Alan was at the forefront of, the microware analyses that Peter and Alan innovated. I mean, that's, you get that intensity brings out a lot of creativity. And I think that's where Alan comes into the story so nicely because he, he was really a creative force in the discipline. And, you know, Peter says that he was all about fun, but that wasn't fun, like kicking back, drinking beer. That was fun, like, let's brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I like the right out of the gate, and we won't ask you to, to give a summary of his whole life because we'll link the piece in the show notes, but you call Alan Walker the Eric Clapton of science. And over the break here, the break, I'm doing air quotes, I've been learning finger-picking guitar, and Eric Clapton learned so many of the different country blue styles of guitar. So that has a, a resonant meaning for me and means it definitely does signify a lot of creativity. So I wonder the, what you mean by that, not just my, my inference. It's my understanding, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Leslie, but that was coined by Ray Bernor. That's my um, understanding, too. And it actually dates 
dates to the time period that Alan was at Johns Hopkins, which is in the close to the DC area. So he got to interact with Ray a bit. And, you know, just Ray Bernour would, uh, I went to the field with Ray at Rudabanya and he, and he spoke exhaustively of Alan and his, his creativity and his passion and his elegance. And I think Eric Clapton is a good analogy all around. Yeah, you know, you could sit in a, oh, sorry. You would sit in a room with Alan and he just would toss out ideas. And I was really good at getting people to think creatively about stuff. Just ideas would flow. And, and Alan always said, ideas are a dime a dozen, which I think was a wonderful way to, to approach the science because then you're not afraid to throw out wild and crazy ideas. And that's where, you know, you might throw out a hundred wild and crazy ideas and 99 of them are actually kind of silly once you spend 30 seconds thinking about them. But one of them might actually just be something. And I get the impression that that's where, you know, musicians like Eric Clapton, you know, their genius is in just not being afraid to (laughs) throw out ideas, new riffs, new innovations. Most of them aren't any good, but every now and then there's brilliance. And that was really what it was like sitting in the room with Alan. It also seems like a really good form of mentorship and that ideas would not be shot down, that you did feel that freedom and support to put it out there. Because that can be a really tough thing to be shot down as a grad student. You never want to speak up again. So that's really good to hear. Oh, okay. Well, I would like to point out that actually it was pretty intimidating. I was always pretty intimidated sitting in the room. With <laughs> so much of what he taught me, I ended up kind of doing more with when he wasn't in the room. <laughs> and it was such my, I adopted his, that mentorship style. But oh man, I remember dinner, t- sitting at the dinner table. So he would do what he called community service dining or feeding or something. And he would invite you over for dinner, but you had to show up like at exactly a specific time. And I forget what time it was, maybe it was seven. But then you had to leave at exactly nine o'clock. You didn't leave at 8.55 and you didn't leave at 9.05. You left at nine. <laughs> And so things were always kind of intense. And then he'd serve you some amazing meal because he and Pat Shipman were wonderful mm-hmm. cooks. And they just really enjoyed, you know, sobre la mesa, you know, conversations over the table. But there'd be like a piece of meat with bones on it on your plate. And you're just like, oh, no, I'm going to have to identify this. <laughs> so everything, at least for me, you know, was uh, always kind of under a, a bit of stress and then trying to pretend like I wasn't feeling stressed out about it. <laughs> which probably increased even more stress, the appearance of not being stressed. It was, it was an intense time. <laughs> I think that may be in part a grad student thing. As a postdoc, I didn't feel quite as intimidated, largely because I had sort of was all done having been completely intimidated at Stony Brook in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of par for the course, but his, his relationship with different folks at different career stages, I think led to different levels of intimidation. I think it depends on personality, too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. That is true, yeah. So it seems like that level of intensity is just kind of how Alan lived his life. In that within paleoanthropology, he, you know, moved his family from London to East Africa. And he kept bush baby pets, which is amazing and seems crazy to me, uh, and became close friends and colleagues with Richard and the other Leakey and family members. But that whole thing of, like, picking up your family and basically moving them to the field site is often what makes paleoanthropology so inaccessible to so many people who might not be able to pick up their family and move. And so how common is that sort of thing to just kind of shift gears and shift life? Still in a paleoanth today. I don't think very. Hmm. <laughs> much, much less, much less so. 
but then there was no internet and you know i think a lot of things happened by serendipity and alan knew you needed to be in the geographic region to be around where things would happen and have those opportunities and so when he got offered that anatomy position he went and i believe alan's brother was in africa as well at the time was he not that's right that's right so it wasn't quite as far away as it may seem hmm I worked with Laura McClatchy when I was an undergrad as well. And I remember at one point she was pregnant, just had the baby and she got money to go to Africa to, you know, dig up fossils. And she literally took the whole family and the baby with her to the field site. And I remember just being like, that is incredibly badass. And I don't think I could ever manage doing that. Plus a baby and the other kids and everything else. So I guess it still does happen it probably is more rare because of the technological advances. Yeah, I never, I never picked up my child and moved to Africa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my, just as a quick aside, my father's dream for me when he heard I was becoming an anthropologist was that I would pick up, literally, he, Africa is what he had in mind for me, but that I would bring him. But forget <laughs> the kids. He wanted to be my field research assistant in Africa. I was like, Dad, I'm... <laughs> Neither a paleoanthropologist nor an Africanist, so <laughs> sorry. He's still supportive. He still shares every podcast episode on Facebook. Oh, that's awesome. That's true. <laughs> he'll hear this and listen and make a comment on it. He so, might. I don't know. <laughs> so Alan Walker then moved to John Hopkins and established a program there that became quite the program in general. He went to Harvard first. Harvard. Okay, I missed that. So he moved to Harvard, and he's trained uh, multiple generations of paleoanthropologists. I mean, the impact on American anthropology is tremendous. Yes? Yeah, yeah, it definitely, definitely is. And the other thing that I, I really respected about him, too, and, and then the opportunity to look over his career, as we did for the memoir, is realizing just the influence he had had on how medical school anatomy is taught. Mm -hmm. That's well beyond paleoanthropology was his influence on that and really bringing paleontology and these morphologists, these evolutionary morphologists into teaching medical school anatomy. Mm -hmm. And that was when he left Harvard and went to Hopkins. It was to enact that vision. Sure. And he actually, I mean, the, the program at Johns Hopkins in the anatomy, cell biology and anatomy department there was just incredible. It was vibrant. The people who were there, you know, I'm not going to name them all, but there are lots of uh, folks that Alan brought with him that became leaders in the discipline themselves. And it was a, a wonderful environment to be in, thanks to, to Alan's really getting the whole thing started. So at Penn, Leslie, you were working with him. Uh, he started studying semicircular canals using the new technology, which, which you mentioned. When I read that, I was like, haven't we been doing this for a long time? It's like one of these stories where it's like three or four careers in one, right? He's contributed so much. Has this not become commonplace in the discipline now? How much of an impact or Kara, help me out here. Are you talking about his contribution yeah. overall? Like it, it, it's almost like the things that he did, we think of as common sense. So when I read his name, until I read the biographical memoir, 
I would gloss over it. The name is, yes, I see that name all the time. It's like seeing Leaky. He is so the it's the one. things that we take for granted today that he was kind of revolutionary. Maybe you could expand on that. What were the things that he brought about that were revolutionary for the field that we totally just take as commonplace now? This is why we co-host. <laughs> So we can work a little bit back chronologically, maybe, so start with the CT scanning. And I'm not sure Alan deserves full credit for innovating that whole idea, but he was a serious early adopter and really enthusiastic. And that having someone with his with his reputation and being kind of this larger large force in the discipline, really jumping on the technology, I think really helped propel that forward. Although I don't think he gets full credit for the innovation itself. And would, would you agree, Peter, on that one? Sure. I think actually this micro CT semicircular canal work and the SEM microware work are perfect bookends for his career. They're really the same thing in a sense. Alan saw a new toy that he thought was really cool and wondered to himself, how can I use this to advance the field to help us better understand human evolution? And in the case of the microware, for example, he happened to see an SEM, some SEM images back when he was in Kenya at the University of Nairobi Medical School. Someone from Harvard came and visited and showed some SEM pictures, you know, the ones that we all remember from grade school of the sperm going into the egg, you know, that quintessential um, black and white beautiful image. He saw things like that and he said, I bet I could use those on teeth. And that preceded his move to the United States. And I think it in part facilitated his move to the United States because that, that's what landed him at Harvard and what sort of initially built the non-field part of his career, the microware part. And I see sort of the semicircular canal work and the micro CT adaptation as two sort of ends to the same story. I don't know if you'd agree, Leslie. Yeah, both of them really show his, he wasn't afraid. You know, mm. some new technology came along and he was never like, oh, I don't actually know how that works, so I'm not going to even bother. He would just jump in. And that's... Yeah, it's one of these things. Ooh, yeah, like you said, a new toy and you get super excited and find ways to, to make it work within your field. Remember, though, back, if we think about it, today, people are used to technology right? Our lives are driven by computers. Instruments are not scary, but that's not necessarily the case 40, 50 years ago when Alan Walker started working in this area. And so anybody who was adopting and embracing this kind of technology deserves special credit because while it's commonplace today, it wasn't then, you know, the height of technology for paleoanthropology at the time were dial calipers, so, uh, so, so that in itself is, he deserves credit for. So we really do appreciate you both coming on to talk about Alan Walker and his legacy. And we were hoping that we could wrap up if there are any maybe favorite stories that one or both of you would like to tell about Alan. Do you want to go first, Leslie? Sure. <laughs> All of my graduate students and postdocs, they all know Alan. They don't know, they never met him personally, but they all know of Alan because one of the things he always did for me was he was just very intellectually generous. He was always very generous with his time and very generous with being a human 
to me. And I really, really appreciated that. And when I finished up my graduate, my time in graduate school, I just turned to him at one, one day and said, you know, Alan, I'll just never be able to repay you for everything you've done for me. I'm extremely grateful. And he said, you know, do you know, <laughs> this isn't how it works. You don't pay me back. You always pay it forward. And so to this day, I'm not a very good cook. So and I, I'm not the right personality to have people at my house for dinner all the time. But I, and in my own way, I try to find ways to pay it forward. And, and every time a graduate student says, I don't know how I'll ever repay you, I'm always like, well, I'm doing it for Alan and you're gonna do it for me with your students. And it makes it really clearly part of an intellectual family. And so passing that forward is sort of the greatest gift he ever gave to me and to them. Man, that was perfect. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly the same for me. Whenever I uh, have a, a graduate student that I'm, I'm, I'm working with and is struggling and I take the time, I, I think of Alan and I think of what he did for me. And you know, it really is each of our responsibilities as academics to, uh, to train the next generation. And it's not their responsibility to thank us. Their way of thanking us is to play it forward to the next generation. That is a wonderful legacy for Alan. And I, I'm, I'm sure Pat will, will delight in hearing that too. It's that his kindness and his generosity is going to be passed on from academic generation to academic generation. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thanks for the opportunity to, to share it more widely. Absolutely, it's an honor.